Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we explore the topic of sharing power, which is a key component and strategy when advancing equity within collective impact work. But what can sharing power look like in practice, and how are roles changed when you're sharing power across your organization? To explore this topic, we learn about the work of Civic Canopy, a nonprofit that focuses on supporting collaborative efforts across Colorado. As part of their own commitments to supporting equity within their work, the Civic Canopy team took an intentional look within and explored how they could share leadership and power across their organization. Joining us for this conversation to share about Civic Canopy's journey so far, we hear from Bill Fulton, Kale McMonagall, and Alice Pugh. They discuss how organizational structures and processes have changed within their work, what challenges they've encountered, and what they have learned so far about sharing power across roles. Moderating this discussion is Collective Impact Forum Executive Director Jennifer Splensky-Jester. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I am Jennifer Jester, Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum. In today's podcast conversation, we will be exploring the journey of one organization who has proactively and intentionally been working to share leadership and power across members of their team. This topic is ripe for conversation. We know that many organizations and collective efforts are eager to work towards more intentional shifting and sharing of power. And it's a very tricky and complex thing to do. In fact, here at the forum, when we think about the five strategies for centering equity that we often talk about, shifting and sharing power is probably the strategy that we have the fewest examples to learn from. So I am excited for today's learning. And this learning is applicable within the boundaries of a single organization, such as today's example, but it's also very transferable into cross-organizational collaborative leadership contexts. So in today's conversation, we will be talking with leaders from the organization Civic Canopy about their own work to decentralize and share leadership and power across their eight-person organization. Joining me today are three members of the Civic Canopy team. Each will introduce themselves in a moment, but it is my pleasure to welcome Bill Fulton, Kale McMonagall, and Alice Pugh. So welcome, everybody. And I would love to start by asking you to each introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what brought you to the work at Civic Canopy. Thanks, Jen. I'll, I'll kick it off. This is Bill Fulton. I'm the executive director and founder of the Canopy. And what brought me to the work originally was this feeling that there was just something missing uh, in the way civil society kind of wrestles with questions of democracy and, and the world that we live in. I had spent some time in East Germany and West Germany before the wall came down and at that time uh you know saw this um huge missing space for organizing the church basements of the world the the labor unions the um, student dorms those are what was ultimately brought the wall down in east germany and we just have a name for that space we know that the market organizes the economic sphere the state organizes the political sphere but 
it seemed like, what would you name the thing that brings people together in civil society? So the civic canopy became that concept of a way in which we could, uh, in our language, uh, the many working together uh, as one for the good of all. Uh, and so that question of could this work, what does it look like, informed some dissertation work that I did. And But I think my interest was what many people find and what draws people to collective impact work in general uh, is how do we uh, you know, become more than the sum of our parts. I'm Kale McMonagle. I'm a collaboration director with the Civic Canopy. I joined the team uh, just about four years ago. I came into this work having a unique experience in my undergrad and master's work, being trained as a facilitator within a communication studies department. And it was that work that led me to see the power of facilitation to help support the conversations that Bill's talking about. But then I really wanted to be a part of an organization that was also dedicated towards equity as a key result of those conversations. And, and so that's what landed me at Civic Canopy. I'm Alice Pugh. I'm a collaboration manager with the Civic Canopy. And I live in Leadville, Colorado, a small rural community up in the mountains and ran a nonprofit for 28 years. So I had a deep knowledge of what the challenges and joys are of, of running a nonprofit. But after 28 years, I was really burnt out and really wanted to move beyond bigger than just the work that we were doing locally. And so I really understood that anything that could bring us together in this network of people really driving forward for their goals was where I wanted to be. And who could resist a mission of the many working as one for the good of all? So when I heard about the Civic Canopy, I felt like I could bring a rural perspective to this beautiful vision. Wonderful. And tell us a little bit more about the work of Civic Canopy, uh, since we're going to be learning so much about your organization internally. Yeah, so the Civic Canopy works across the state of Colorado to support collaboration, whether it's through collective impact efforts, through coalition building across the board. We're a small team of uh, just about 10 folks, give or take, uh, depending on how many interns we have at a given time. And um, uh, we work, have worked as a backbone for a number of collective impact efforts. And now we've kind of transitioned to supporting those folks who are playing that role of backbone, but then also working with uh, other other uh, foundations and organizations to support other folks to, to just increase their ability to collaborate with one another. And we're eager to learn more about how the Civic Canopy has, evolved, has evolved your own organizational roles, structures, and policies to advance equity and better share power and leadership across the organization. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how the transformation began, this journey toward equity? I love this journey. It's, you know, I've been on my own personal journey towards equity for many, many, many years, both in my work in with the Latino community, but also just in general as, as an individual. And at the Canopy, we've always had collaboration as at the very core belief of our heart and soul. And so, if we're collaborating and we're really looking at trying to support networks and other coalitions come to be 
better at, at equity and better at health equity, we, we needed to think about our own structure internally as well. And then, you know, the whole summer of, of the pandemic and George Floyd and we wanting to be very vocal about our support of equity, but really wanting to be intentional. And so I think that's what really started to start to have some deep conversations about our own definitions, our own journeys internally, and what were the structures that either allowed us to thrive or really put us on the outside of things. So I remember some conversations we had around definitions about what different aspects of equity were? How did we see them? What was our perspective? And it was surprising and very vulnerable, but very authentic and honest. And at that point, we really started to look at our own practices. Were they equitable? Were the tools we were sharing with our partners really based in equity? And then what were our, what was our structure within? Were we like this driving white organization that just worked so hard and yet didn't really care for each other. What were some of the, the the bumps that needed us needed us to pay attention to? And so I think that's what really started about our equity journey: wanting to be intentional, but not wanting to be superficial, and really wanting to be really clear that we were willing to do the work on equity. You might also name that. As we succeeded in changing some of our hiring practices, we had an increasingly diverse staff um, and with two white co-executive directors who, you know, me being there for 20 years and and uh, uh, Jody being there for uh, for 10, you had two senior white leaders at the top of an organizational chart, increasingly diverse younger team. That that structure was not conducive to creating really authentic, honest conversations like you need for so we kind of asked ourselves, what would we need to look like in order to foster the kind of communications? And I think working with some of some great consultants really put in motion this idea of a leadership disruption. How could we create the internal organizational uh, kind of structure that would we would be confident could have the type of honest uh, discussions that we needed? And just to jump back into that, Bill, I having been an ED for so many years and working with so many people in community that the executive director take on more and more and more and more responsibilities and soon take on such a mass of work that they burn out the structures underneath them. People don't feel like there's much place for advancement. It was pretty clear, even looking beyond the civic canopy, that as leaders in the nonprofit field, we needed to do the work and figure out a new way or different ways of really building structures that would be both sustainable, but also equitable and, and able to really meet the needs of our people and community who are most vulnerable in, in trying to change our society. So we felt like the change needed to, to happen within to start. Well, Alice and Bill, thank you for that story and the recognition of the need uh, for the transformation, both in order to really be the change internally that you were helping and hoping to foster externally, and also for the sustainability of people across the organization, um, the staff who are on the team and the co-executive directors. Um, I, I appreciate you drawing that broad range of benefits out. So tell us, where you are now, tell us a little bit about the current governance and leadership structure and processes. 
Yeah, so you're catching us sort of midway through this story, or I don't even know if it's the midway point. We've been on this journey for, I guess, almost two years now, um, and really working through a number of conversations that helped us take steps along the way towards a new structure. Where we have landed is really thinking about our organization as an organism in some ways. And what are the essential functions that help an organism live, continue to do its job, um, and, and work? And so we have organized ourselves around different pods that are part of those different functions. There's a communications and um, networking pod, a resource management pod that helps to make sure we have the resources needed to do our work, a people uh, pod, a projects pod. And within each of those, each pod has a pod point person whose job is not necessarily to make decisions, but to facilitate decision making. So we've developed a decision making matrix that helps us figure out at what levels do different decisions need to get made? When is something a consensus decision? If we're going to go and decide to change our whole vision and mission, that's a consensus. It affects everybody. It's of high importance, those types of things. If we're deciding um, something like whether or not to change up our copier and printer leaf in the office, that's not a consensus decision. That's lower down where we call something an advice-based process. One person's delegated to make that decision, but they need to ask all people who might be affected by that decision for their input before making it. Their decision might not make everybody happy, but they're going to keep those considerations in mind, knowing that soon enough, they'll be on the other side of an advice-based decision where somebody's asking them for their input and is ultimately going to make a decision about it. So that's kind of the, the basic structures we've used. We still have an interim leadership team, so we haven't totally distributed where we don't have an executive director or we don't have um, directors, but we're still taking steps towards what would it look like to kind of break apart some of those pieces. As we go through all this, um, we have talked about having no titles, everyone equal, all, everyone involved in the types of decisions they had the expertise, knowledge, or, or excitement about. And yet, we have external factors that influence us as well. And so funders and boards of directors really would like to talk to the one in charge. And so that continues to be um, an interesting evolution of knowing how we are feeling internally is feeling really a shared leadership model. And yet externally still, you know, people seeking the leader. So that's uh, an interesting process. That is interesting, Alice, um, and I appreciate you kind of drawing out the difference between how you're operating internally, but then still needing to meet some of the expectations of uh, the, I don't know, the outside world, if you will, folks who see an organization perhaps with a more traditional mindset about who they need to get to for decisions and for power and credibility. Um, so that's um, that isn't something that I had thought about previously, but it, it makes sense given that our society hasn't made the same type of transformation that the Civic Canopy and, and many other organizations are working to make internally. 
what is working well about the new approach? Uh, I'd love to hear about some of those benefits or maybe even some unanticipated benefits to the organization. Yeah, actually, it's a, it's a good segue from that last point because there is kind of a co-conspiracy that goes with internal and external. You know, it's, it's as an executive director, it's great to be the one that people want to talk to and the person that feels like, hey, we'll get. Uh, but I think the unspoken downside of that is the assumptions around what leadership means, that there would be one person that would have the right answer or one person to go to. And I think, you know, for so many people in the nonprofit sector, you know, the longer you stay in the role of executive director, the closer you are to burning out. It's just too much to carry on the shoulders. There's no way that any one of us can uh, can shoulder that. So I, I would just say, even though sometimes this conversation is framed as the giving up of power, my experience as an executive director is it's been truly liberating uh, to see, um, you know, the implications of what Kale was just describing, this pod structure, you can think of it as a network, a much more resilient and fluid giving and taking of roles. And it has, uh, first of all, just removed the illusion that uh, it's, a, it's a pyramid and that somehow being higher on that structure means that I have more, uh, you know, better ideas or shoulder more. So I felt things being unburdened, that the weight of leadership is distributed more equitably and evenly. And one of the payoffs happened, uh, like immediately, a, a really important teammate that was a part of this evolution, it was recruited away by a great foundation, you know, uh, had a job, to, uh, an opportunity she simply couldn't pass up. And in a, in, the, in a previous day, that would have been a devastating loss. It would have stopped the show. But because we had done this work together where each person on the team began to see themselves increasingly as a leader within the organization, it was almost like having one person drop out of carrying the load of leadership just meant that we repositioned ourselves. And the team meeting that happened, I think it was a week after uh, we got the news that she'd be leaving. Uh, people just stepped in, in 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 like a kind of a jazz, uh, you know, quartet of just new roles were played. Uh, it wasn't like we didn't miss her at all. Of course we did, but uh, the chance for others to to have a structure they could easily step into, clarity of roles that were being redistributed. Um, it was an absolutely elegant um, example of creating an enabling structure that allows that responsibility and roles to be more quickly and equitably distributed to everyone's advantage. It just felt like such an enormous relief. And I think there's been a number of things like that that have just kind of rippled through the uh, the canopy over the last couple of years. I think another example for us of a real success has been a decision we made uh, last year as inflation rates were going up, we needed to make a decision on a cost of living increase for our staff. This is usually a decision that's just made by an executive director. In this case, we moved towards a consent-based decision. So do I consent to a given course of action? Um, and in this conversation, this could be ripe for disagreement, right? This is sensitive topics. Uh, you know, salaries are involved, it requires salary transparency, it requires knowledge of the budget, it requires understanding of inflation and things like that, right? And we had gone through steps to increase knowledge and expertise of all of those. Um, and it was in that conversation that initially the group decided, or our team decided, to go for a full 9% cost of living increase as a team. 
Well, a couple months down the line, we were going through a hiring process and we ended up coming to a point where we had three great candidates instead of the two positions we had just posted for. Well, as a team, we agreed to reduce our cost of living increase to 7% to be able to bring on that next team member. And so this is an example of where we were able to come together around a collective interest versus our individual interest of our own individual salaries to make a decision that benefited us as a full organization um, and didn't cause any sort of strife of, uh, but because we made that decision together and we're able to see the larger picture that usually only the ED sees. Well, that's a great, uh, those are both the, the COLA discussion and your um, colleagues transition are really concrete examples of some of those benefits that um, you are experiencing as a team. Um, and I'm curious, you know, these are, these sound great, but I also anticipate there have been some challenges. So would you be willing to share a little bit about some of the challenges that have been presenting themselves as well? So some of the biggest challenges I think we face is where where a decision is. <laughs> um, there are some decisions that are very clear, like, you know, cost of living would be in the resource pod, but then there's some other decisions that are a little less clear. So I remember one of our, our staff meetings, we were all together and the point people on each of the pods came together with a little practice about, okay, if this came up, where would the decision lie? And so there was, um, everyone chatted this, that, and the other thing, and with the conversation, it was sort of, oh, I think it should be in the resource pod. Oh, no, I think it should be in the people pod. Well, actually, it really should be in the governance pod, and and with a lot of laughter and, and great deal of uh, support for each other, we're actually able to figure out when there's an unclear decision, what are the mechanisms in order to figure out really who should make that decision, whether it's a group of people, an individual or just, um, you know, it should go on to another pod. I remember we were also looking at benefits with the human resource pod, and our office manager is an amazingly talented person, but very respectful of this new process. And so as we looked at those decisions, he was very, very, very careful about making sure everyone was included along the way on something that was going to impact all of us. And really, once he had the okay from the rest of us, probably could have moved that decision along quicker. But that learning of how to make the decision, how to gather input, bring it back, and then make the decision and move it into practice was so valuable that it was really an excellent process for all of us to understand that as we make decisions, some people make decisions quickly, others really are going to need some more input, and we can all learn by supporting each other through that absolute process. Um, so we will have a new benefit package coming up this next year. So one thing that some folks might be thinking who are listening is, this sounds great, and it sounds like it takes a lot of time uh, to bring folks who are newer to the organization into this comfort with decision-making, to decide who is even going to make decisions, to discuss at length some of these decisions. 
it might not be true, but I'm I'm curious about that. And I think the listeners might be curious about that. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, is it does it take more time? Where is that time coming from? We know everyone's holding so many different uh, responsibilities or just or tell me I'm wrong. It's definitely not a painless process, but I would say it has the possibility of being a restorative process. And that requires some some pain to go through. So uh, overall, in terms of like what we can do in terms of project work versus the time we've had to spend on internal retreats, working on developing these processes, that type of thing, that has shifted since we started this process. So we've had to take more time on some of the internal things versus some of the things that, you know, bring in revenue for an organization. Um, that, so that being said, having a strong financial position when starting this out is an important factor. So you don't have folks feeling like, uh, are we going to be okay as an organization too? Um, I think in addition to that, there's like that money piece of it, right? But there's also a piece of this that, what is the kind of experiential level of going through this process? What is the policies and structures, grading pods, those types of things? But then what also is just the hard conversations, interpersonal dynamics that come about as part of this? So early on in this process, we hadn't fully decided where we were going in this. We knew something about a uh, white-led organization with an increasingly diverse staff was getting stuck somewhere. We got a recommendation from a consultant for that leadership disruption. Would this mean that we needed to have leadership uh, leave? Do they just need to start succession planning and, and figure out that next level of leadership? Is this a different leadership structure? The way we we, we went, where we looked at distributing power. And to have these conversations, you're still having these conversations within an existing power structure. So there was a moment in time where I named for our team, hey, I don't know that Bill, you as a founder is serving our organization anymore. This is not an easy thing to say to your boss, right? It's not an easy thing as a boss to receive especially somebody who has poured 20 years into an organization. Um, we were able to have that conversation and it took time that Bill and I needed to step away from each other in our relationship to be able to hear what were we saying in that, what's, what's at the core of why I maybe felt like this isn't the right fit for us as an organization. Uh, time to just feel that ouch and everything like that, right? Um, but months down the line, I've actually switched my position. That shift, and I'll let Bill speak to that in some ways. Um, I, I, I wasn't confident that in Bill's leadership, he was willing to hold a hard line on equity. And it was getting away in the way of us realizing our boldest dreams of that. But over this process, Bill was able to take that feedback and receive it and then shift the ways that he was operating 
and also make room for different decision-making structures that would mean that that wasn't getting in the way of things all the time. And so Bill and I, now I would say Bill shouldn't leave the organization. I, I would say we'd be worse off if he did. Um, but that wasn't a simple sort of, oh, we had a team retreat and that all got settled and now we're in a better place. Um, there were real times where we had to, you know, sit down and think through long emails to each other, talk with our friends and family to process through this, all of those types of things. And yeah, just to think about that moment, it's, I mean, it's, it's so powerful to reflect back on it because while it was powerful for, I think, you know, each of us individually and as our team, I think it's, it's a very common dynamic in this work that organizations and the classic framing of it is, you know, it's typically a person of color or a person who brings a, a historically marginalized identity that is experiencing a lack of support in an organization, they raise that and they are often pushed out of the organization or at least silenced for it. No, 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 that's, you're overstating it. And, and I have to say, I, I understand why that happens. The, my inner experience of that was, it was so threatening and, and put me in a defensive position to have this challenge raised that I'd spent so long manufacturing this persona that I had worked so hard. Like I'm the good guy. Like I'm doing everything, you know, on behalf of equity and, and experiencing that emotional challenge, but it was, it, it was spot on. And not only was it, it was Kale's critique accurate that I was in the fortunate position of being able to be nuanced about questions of equity and therefore younger, more diverse staff were the ones that were having to shoulder the hard work of it. That, that was an accurate assessment. Not only was that accurate, it was incredibly courageous and exactly the kind of values we were trying to, you know, get out of this process. So, you know, on one hand, it was uh, the, the most threatening thing I'd ever experienced professionally and also the window of growth that I'd never experienced. And so I suddenly realized that I was kind of pissed off at that. And I had, you know, I don't I don't excel at anger. I tend to excel at calming things. And so it, in, it just opened up a whole new side of my own you know, way of showing up in the work. Uh, and there's nothing that's less appealing as a leader than being only partially formed emotionally. <laughs> so unless you have the courage of someone to that's willing to challenge that, I think it's easy to fall prey to a, a type of leadership that stays a, a little too safe in that register. So the, you know, the upshot of it, while it was one of the most difficult periods, I'd say, in my professional life, I think it's the most significant learning. And now that we're on the able to kind of see that moment as this invitation for collective growth to to take seriously that challenge but you know over time recognize well now that we kind of broke through that there's different ways for each of us to show up and we've renegotiated our terms and uh and that fluidity and dynamism i think was uh what we were after when we said let's disrupt our leadership structure but nowhere did i see on that journey oh and this will be the day that i am completely confronted by my own emotional insecurity, and I will welcome that. It, it was a surprise and a challenge along the way, but, you know, I'd never go back. It was one of the most professionally rewarding, and still the closeness and sense of solidarity with not only Kale, but the whole team is just kind of an unimaginable benefit of the of the journey we've been on. And it, it just really brings to mind thinking about collective impact as moving at the rate of trust. And that's in fact what this has been. So if we wanna have big, bold ideas that will change our society, 
this is time well invested, absolutely in all ways, because the trust that we were able to generate with that of each other, of the ability to move forward as a team has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you, Alice, for that addition and Bill and Kale for sharing that story um, that I know took some vulnerability, uh, certainly for you to go through, but for publicly sharing that um, with uh, folks listening to this podcast, I really am grateful for that. So thank you, all three of you. Um, Alice, you were just beginning to talk a little bit about how some of the learning that's happening within the canopy is also really relevant to folks doing work in community. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you think about translating this to the work you're supporting collaboratives and coalitions to do. Thanks for asking that, Jennifer. I, I am so excited that nonprofits can be better, that we can do better, and we will be the leaders that will really help our society experiment and understand the structural limits that we've placed upon the work that needs to be done to make a community a place where all can thrive. So I work with rural communities, lots of coalitions, and lots of nonprofits. And across the board, there are so many founders that are absolutely ready to give give this up and they don't even know all the things that they do so with lots of conversations you might say well what uh you know what are the your job duties what are your function areas and and they almost can't name it because they do everything they do payroll they do hr they make every decision they're responsible for all the fundraising they may have other staff working on that but ultimately the buck really does stop with these nonprofit leaders there's been a couple of examples that for me, because I've been excited about what we have learned in the Civic Canopy, I can't help but want to share that we, there were an instance, for example, in the San Luis Valley of a nonprofit or a coalition leader that had been the founder for 10 years and was ready to move on and yet not quite sure how to do that. So the board of directors had this leadership transi transition crisis almost. What are we gonna do? How could we possibly find someone that could do everything that you do? You hold the organization. But the board stepped into this and wanted to learn. So I was able to introduce, and it's not so much exactly what we have done, it's more this concept of there can be another way. It doesn't have to be the way it's been. So that has been really exciting to really both introduce the type of conversation and dialogue about what is this organization? What are the key functions? Who else is out there? And to encourage the board and the existing executive director to seek the knowledge within. So to really do some staff conversations and surveys about what were the skill sets that were there and not being utilized and what was the interest in really stepping into better decision making more shared power and as, as a result of that they were actually able to come up with a similar pod system this pod system seems to be resonating with many of the organizations i've worked with that we should really take a look at strengths within our organization and interests 
and and desire and passion and bring those together to share some of the some of the load, but also some of the responsibility and the mission and the the drive forward. And that's really helped organizations keep retain existing staff as well as really be able to teach and, and train upcoming leaders on what are all the components of an organization. What is the budget all about? And how does that impact day-to-day life? So key staff then start to be able to be more engaged and starting to have that responsibility of decision-making. And there's bumps along the way. So you can have a structure of a pod, but if they don't have decision-making authority, it's not really a change. It's just displacing or adding time to people's day. And so um, really having a process of practicing decision-making, learning about it, identifying the types of decisions, and having an executive team be able to let go of having ultimate yay or nay decisions is, you know, sort of that process that all organizations need to go forward in if they're really going to adapt to the the environment that they're in. We have great fortune in rural America that people close to the earth also look at at their organizations as ecological systems in some way. And that really resonates that ecological systems don't necessarily have just one dominant um, creature or, or type of plant that makes all the decisions. It is a collaborative, networked, interrelated type of system that is all around us. And so being able to bring that into the world of, of humans, because we are part of nature, is really been absolutely the best approach to really introduce people to this idea. Look below our feet, and that's that's what our ecosystems are doing anyway, and how can we mimic that? I think in addition to that, for collective impact efforts, there's oftentimes a trap that people get stuck in of utilizing a backbone within our traditional structures of how we think about how decisions get made and where leadership lies. And it's really easy for suddenly a couple years down the line, a um, a backbone entity to feel like they're holding more than they were supposed to. This was supposed to be distributed across all of these different partners. It was supposed to be held by the collective, but suddenly I'm the de facto doer of everything as the backbone. And so I I think that there's been times that we've introduced this decision-making matrix with folks to understand how to use advice-based decision-making as a way that not everything has to get decided by the full group. Individual members can make decisions, but how do you create a natural system of sort of uh, accountability across those partners by saying each of you will have decision-making powers, right? But you're accountable to the collective in that process. And I think that's where we get mixed up, where we want to create new structures, but we sometimes just take what our, you know, go-to decision-making structures or processes from traditional systems, and then they don't work within this new way of being. And so I think that would be the other thing that I would apply to kind of the collective impact framework to 
is thinking through how to clarify where decisions get made, how they get made, and then how to better distribute them across the group as well. Those are both all really helpful considerations and lots of nodding happening <laughs> across folks on the line. Yeah, Bill, go ahead. Jen, if I could just add one more quick one that is had surprising impact is just salary transparency and a greater ownership of the finances and the budget. I, I think that has been an unlocking of some of the unspoken patterns that go with concentrating power and decision making is around the finances. I can't share this budget. It's got salaries. I can't, you know, it, it, it's, it was a necessary uh, kind of wall to break down early. And it's, it's been really important both on the finance side, but therefore on the greater ownership of the work in the organization. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for adding that. So as you are looking toward the future, I'm really interested to hear what the Civic Canopy is thinking about next as you continue to evolve. Why don't we start with you, Alice? Okay. Um, so we we have many dreams, shall we say, one of which is really to share this with the with others, which is why we're here today. But one of the things that we are moving towards is now that we've had two years of going through this whole process to do an equity check-in and really be able to evaluate our efforts both internally. Is this a more equitable system? Is it really producing the equitable results we were hoping for? So doing a bit of a, of a check-in. And then also, how do we support employees or, or others, new partners that are not used to this self-governance this mutual accountability and self-governance. So what what are the mechanisms that we will need to create or look for guidance to really be able to make sure that everyone comes equipped to be able to fully function within a different type of structure? I'd add on to that that it's a different type of skill sets that having a distributed leadership structure privileges in some ways. And so that's another opportunity for inequity to come into the mix. If everybody has to give feedback to all members of the team, rather than relying on supervisors to give feedback to individual employees or something like that, it requires people to be comfortable giving feedback, be comfortable stepping into conflict, and that raises up all sorts of it, a minefield emerges with um, all of our healing, collective trauma work. Ooh, what's my relationship to conflict? What's my history pattern, generational patterns around this, right? So I think that's really the next step for us is thinking through there's the ideal of doing this work. And then there's the practice of doing this work. And how are we going at the right pace? to be able to make sure each person is able to step fully into self-governance and thrive within this environment, knowing that some people come more ready to that table than others um, when, when starting this work. I think both of those, I mean, we and we could add other pieces on the internal, um, kind of agenda of how what we keep learning and, and what we want to take on next. And thinking externally, one of the things that this has enabled is, and it, again, we're, we're still early in our own journey, but um, from the standpoint of 
some of the visions of what collective impact uh, makes possible. I think many of us for years have used analogies like the, you know, the murmuration of starlings, or we use slime mold as an example of kind of a self-organizing system without some body at the top of it directing it, that in you know, response to complexity, leadership emerges. Well, this is the first experience that we've had with what that actually practically means. You know, instead of having a top-down you know, org chart about the, at least the possibility of leadership emerging within our organization. And as we look to the networks of networks that we work with across the state, um, being able to apply some of those. What if it, it didn't take just one body at the top of something directing a course of action, but applying some of these principles, you know, we've long had on our agenda the belief that, you know, the universe is on our side. The structure of change is through a series of successive layers of networks. Um, and whether that's a, a an individual as part of a team, a team as part of an organization, an organization as part of a coalition, and a coalition is part of this, you know, larger web of collective action where I, I think the application of what our, how we'll show up and bring new types of leadership to the distribution of work across our state and across the country I think it just opens up a lot of potential for transferring those lessons. And I think that's a really exciting uh, stage for us to look into. Wonderful. Yes, Bill, I've heard some folks talk, also inspired by nature, talk about like fractals, right? The, the fractal nature of working in complexity and what you're describing really um, reminds me of, of that. So thank you for sharing all of those perspectives, Bill and Kale and Alice. Um, it has been a pleasure to chat with you all. Um, I know that folks who have been listening will really take away a lot of gratitude for the lessons that you've shared and the vulnerability with which you showed up today. So thank you all. And I hope that you all uh, continue to keep us abreast of your journey as it moves forward. So thank you. Thank you for including us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, you can find links to resources in the footnotes for this episode. We would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced and edited on the unceded traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Squamish, Stillquamish, and Muckleshoot tribes. We honor with gratitude the land itself and the past, present, and futures of these tribes. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and the outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in more learning events, registration is now open for our upcoming online workshops happening in June and July. On June 21st and 22nd, we are hosting the workshop Introduction to Collective Impact and the Backbone Role, which will go over the foundations of collective impact and is a great workshop if you are new to thinking about collective impact work. Registration closes on June 16th. And on July 11th and 13th, we are hosting the workshop Data and Learning and Collective Impact, which will be taking a deep dive into the various practices you can do to support data and learning within your collaborative work. Registration closes on July 7th. Please visit our events section of collectiveimpactforum.org to learn more and register. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.